Today we are continuing on with the book of Luke, and we start a new chapter, although the topic uh, of discussion this afternoon in Luke chapter 13 remains the same as it was in Luke chapter 12. At the outset of, cha- at the outset of chapter 12, Jesus had warned his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, and he had warned them to avoid the leaven of the Pharisees, which was hypocrisy. All throughout chapter 12, we see over and over and over again Jesus uh, constantly hammering on the issue of hypocrisy with the Pharisees, ridiculing them and calling them um, to forsake their hypocrisy and uh, uh, pronouncing judgment upon them for their hypocrisy. Even in the last part of chapter 12, last time we looked at the book of Luke, we saw that Jesus criticized them because they were able to interpret the the weather. They were able to notice some things and interpret them properly, but they were unable to interpret the signs of the present time. And perhaps prompted by this last criticism against the Pharisees, uh, we've come to chapter 13 and verse number 1, where someone, um, it doesn't specify who it is, whether it was a Pharisee or someone else in the crowd, bringing news to Jesus about the slaughter that had taken place there close by the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Notice in verse uh, 1 down through verse number 2. Here there were some present that came and they told them how that Pilate had mingled the blood of Galileans who were coming to worship and to offer sacrifices, how he had mixed the blood of those Galileans with the blood of their sacrifices. Uh, We don't have any other details about this uh, event that had happened, either from Scripture or from uh, contemporary historians like Josephus or others. So uh, any details that we would ascribe to this event is mere conjecture. But there are a couple things that we can know from the passage. Uh, One, this most likely occurred at the time of Passover. This would have been one of the only times where, uh, where people would come and slaughter their own sacrifices and bring them and offer them to the Lord. We don't have any motive from on the part of Pilate. We don't know whether these people, these Galileans, were part of a different political party, and because of their opposition to him or some action that he had taken, that he decided that they needed to be killed. Uh, Pilate also had a, a love-hate relationship with the Jews. Uh, Pilate often found himself in opposition with the Jews, and perhaps this was just one more thing that uh, drew his attention and gave him cause within his own mind to... Uh, persecute the Jews. But regardless uh, of the circumstances surrounding it, we find what seems to be a, a really a sad ending to the lives of these Galileans. Here, as they are on their way to worship, to offer the sacrifices, seemingly to do a good thing, their life was cut short by the murderous uh, intent of Pilate. And in offering their sacrifices, both their blood and the blood of their sacrifices were mingled together and shed. This is a seamless, senseless uh, act of evil. And it seems as though the crowd is coming to Jesus and bringing up this uh, event, uh, maybe to find a comment, to get some comment from Jesus, maybe against Pilate, or maybe even, and I think this is probably more the case, to commend them for their righteousness seeing that they were not also destroyed by Pilate. Jesus, in reply, we won't get all the way into his uh, reply. We'll look at that in just a few moments because Jesus himself brings up another instance uh, where uh, 
people's lives were ended uh, seemingly too early. But he simply calls them to repent. He says, do you think the Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then Jesus brings up the uh, issue of the collapsing of the Tower of Siloam. Um, Siloam was an area just outside of the walls of Jerusalem uh, back when it was created. I guess the city of David would be more uh, accurately called, uh, where there was a spring-fed pool. Uh, this pool was not a spring in and of itself, but uh, if we looked in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 20 and 2 Chronicles chapter 32, we see that this was a man-made spring. Uh, and what Hezekiah had done is he had diverted uh, and stopped up the, the, the flow of water at the spring of Gihon, which is on the eastern side of the city, and he had diverted it uh, through this tunnel. It's called Hezekiah's Tunnel. 1,750 feet was dug out uh, going from the, the pool of Gihon or the spring of Gihon uh, and uh, sending it to this pool at Siloam. Uh, many people have conjectured why he did this. Uh, some believe that it was just a, a safer place for the water source to be. Um, it would be, under much, would be much less likely to have been attacked by the Assyrians or others that would come up against Israel. But in any case, we find this pool of Siloam. We, we see this uh, pool of Siloam mentioned uh, many times in the New Testament uh, as the place where Jesus performed miracles. And it was at the pool of Siloam that people waited for the stirring of the waters, and when they would reach the water, they would, they would hope to be healed uh, by that pool. Um, the Tower of Siloam is not the Pool of Siloam, nor was it necessarily located right at the Pool of Siloam, but uh, many believe that the, the Tower of Siloam was one of several towers built along that waterway uh, to provide protection against um, people who would come and threaten their water supply and to provide security and safety for the city. So here Jesus brings up the mentioning of this, uh, the, the Tower of Siloam and how that the Tower of Siloam had collapsed and killed 18 people. Uh, people think that it may have been part of a, a scaffolding system that collapsed uh, as people, they were working on the tower or whatever, but we know that 18 people, eight, the lives of 18 people were ended prematurely as we would think of it. And Jesus here, aware of this situation, adds this situation to the event that the people had brought before him. And he applies the same uh, logic and a statement following. He says, Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We see first the occasion uh, for Jesus' call for the Pharisees and for the people to repent. Here, the, uh, the, these people seem to have their own uh, reasoning for the collapse of the tower or even for the, the shedding of the Galileans' blood who came to offer their sacrifices uh, at the temple. And Jesus preempts their argument, uh, brings up the argument or what would have been a very common argument to be made as to why these events occurred only to wholeheartedly reject it. Notice what Jesus said. He did not start off and simply say, uh, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, but he prefaced that call to repentance with a question, a rhetorical question offered in both cases. 
to really expose the heart of the Pharisees and to draw attention to their sin and to their self-righteousness. Notice in verse number two, and he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Notice again in verse number four, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? And he answers that with an emphatic, no, I tell you, they were not. The, uh, one of the most common um, reasons that many people give for suffering and for evil in this world is the sin, the sin of others. As we saw uh, in the case of Mephibosheth uh, back in March when we looked at the life of Mephibosheth, uh, and also several examples in the New Testament where even the disciples came to the man who was blind and said, uh, Lord, was it for his sins or for his parents' sins that he was blind? This was a common thinking of the time. And Jesus, seeming to know what the underlying reasoning of the, of the Pharisees was, preempts this and rhetorically answers their question in in, uh, not in the affirmative, he says, no, they were not worse sinners than all the rest in Jerusalem. These Galileans whose lives were taken from them by Pilate, they were not worse than everyone else in Galilee because their lives were ended in this way. It's interesting that, that in these two scenarios that Jesus addresses, that he brings up both um, tragedy and calamity that comes at the hand of evil men uh, in addressing the situation with Pilate, but also he brings up a situation uh, that seems to be nothing more than happenstance, uh, or as uh, insurance companies like to call, uh, an act of God, where something happens where no actions were taken to cause it, nor could anything be done to have prevented it. This just happened. But he says to them, do you think that they were worse sinners than everyone else because they were killed? No. See, this was a, a common um, outlook when it came to suffering and to evil. In the lives of the Pharisees, they looked at these uh, events and they said to themselves, these deaths must have been directly related to some sin or pattern of heinous sin in the lives of these individuals. And because of their sin, whether known or unknown, the judgment of God fell upon them. I don't think that's where the Pharisees stopped, though. The Pharisees didn't just look at other sin and say, oh, look, look at how horrible they were. But in addition to that, they said, well, seeing that we were not destroyed, what does that say about us? We must be, we must be really holy. We must be really righteous. They were so uplifted with their self-righteousness and condemning others and commending themselves to the Lord that they were, instead of mourning with those who lost their lives, recognizing the tragedy, and meeting with them, uh, weeping with those that weep. They were uplifted with pride in their own hearts and only thought better of themselves because of it. We often look at this uh, ancient outlook and as it relates to suffering and evil, and we think, wow, I'm glad it's not that way today. But it's very interesting as tragedies uh, plague our, our land and our world, uh, often the, the reason that many Christians give uh, to, to events uh, perpetrated by evildoers or even to natural disasters, and they attribute sin, underlying sin that God must be judging. 
I'm sure you uh, remember the events of September 11th, 2001, where thousands of lives were taken uh, in uh, the World Trade uh, Center collapse. I remember after that, many preachers that I heard in the the circles that uh, I was in say, certainly, certainly this was the judgment of God upon New York City for all of their sin, for their uh, brazen homosexuality and other things. Remember Hurricane Katrina that flooded New Orleans, killing over 1,800 people and causing hundreds of billions of dollars in damage. What was said about that? Well, you know, New Orleans is a really wicked city. Certainly God is judging that city for its wickedness. Las Vegas shooting back in 2017 where uh, hundreds of people were injured by gunfire and over 60 people's lives were taken Many people would look at that and say, it's because of their sin. Now, I'm not saying that, that occasionally circumstances come about and events happen because God does judge sin. Uh, we know that from the book of Romans that the, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against un, uh, unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And truly, there is a time and a place to consider whether there is some sin that has brought on uh, evil or calamity. But Jesus, in this case, doesn't even entertain the thought for a moment. He says, do you think these people were the worst Galileans? They were worse sinners than everyone else in Galilee? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus rejected the common thinking that these deaths seem to have taken place because of some unknown sin or some sin that was unrepented of. Even in the collapse of the tower at Siloam, he said these people were not the worst people in Jerusalem, and that is why they were killed. Certainly, no, that's not why it happened. I think when interpreting acts of evil and looking at our nation and seeing calamity and catastrophe happen, we should be very cautious in in purporting to know the mind of God about why certain things take place. Certainly in this life, our knowledge is finite, and only God truly knows why certain calamities and catastrophes happen. Instead, we should come along the people whose lives are harmed, those who are suffering, those who are mourning, and be light and salt. Pray with them and witness to them. Give them the truth of the gospel, for that is the only thing that can help us, not not simply in this life, but also in the life to come. Secondly, not only did Jesus reject their interpretation of these events, but Jesus, in a sense, I love the way that Jesus said it here, he he completely turns the conversation from the the people that they were wishing to condemn for their sin to their own hearts, and he seems to say this, what if the Galileans did suffer an early death because of their sin? What is that to you? What about your own heart? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus here was not uh, engaging or entertaining their their thoughts for even a moment, but instead he called out their self-righteousness. Now, it's very easy to think today that because we're we're a a member or attendee of a, a good church that preaches the gospel, that that automatically puts us in good standing with God. Well, I have, I have family devotions. We do family worship with our family every single night. We never miss. Certainly, before God, I have a right standing. 
Just as Jesus looked at the crowd and said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish, we must come to the place in our lives where we realize that without true heartfelt repentance and faith toward God, that we are no better than they. We can bask in our self-righteousness and say, well, uh, I'm better than other Christians are because I have a certain belief or I understand theology in a more accurate way than other people do. No, nothing will give us a right standing before God except faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, and repentance of our sins to Him. So Jesus here calls the Pharisees, He calls this religious crowd to repent. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So that being said, what is, what is repentance? Um, I've actually really enjoyed the past several um, lessons, not in contrast to the ones that came before, but um, going through the, the marrow of modern divinity and looking at uh, repentance and faith has been very encouraging. Um, so let's, let's take a definition that we, that we heard from the, the marrow of modern divinity about uh, repentance and the nature of repentance. As Evangelista said in the Mirror of Modern Divinity, repentance signifies a change of our minds from false ways to right and of our hearts from evil to good. This was given in the context of um, repentance preceding faith where Jesus Christ told them, repent and believe. And uh, Evangelista had said, if, if there's any repentance intended before faith, this is the repentance that it was talking about. Turning from your self-righteousness, turning against your your beliefs that you once held against the resurrection from the dead, as the Sadducees believed. So here Jesus is calling them to a change of mind, a change of heart that would lead to a change of action and combined with a faith towards God. So we see that that repentance is a change of, of mind, but Repentance does not stop in the mind. It does not stop in the heart, but instead it it works its way out through our lives as believers. Jesus here was calling the Pharisees to repent lest they come under condemnation. But as believers, having repented of our sins and having come to, to Christ in faith through his grace alone, we realize that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ So how, as believers, are we to look at repentance and see repentance in our own hearts? Uh, J.C. Ryle uh, identified five marks of true repentance, and I think they're very good. I won't have time to to fully explicate uh, and and to fully develop all of them, but uh, let's just look at them for just a moment. He says, repentance, number one, begins with a knowledge of our sin. Repentance begins with a knowledge of our sin. Without a knowledge for sin, uh, there is nothing uh, for which to repent. As we look at the law of God and the perfection of God's law and the standard of perfection that God holds, we realize that we have not kept it, that we cannot keep it. And uh, even as this morning, as we looked at the, the first use of the law, that the, the law is given as a schoolmaster to show us that we can never attain a right standing before God as a result of our positive actions by in keeping uh, God's law perfectly. We know that none of us can. Instead, we rest upon our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who came to this earth, who entered into his own creation, and who, as opposed to us, he did keep the law of God perfectly. He fulfilled all of God's law 
and took upon himself our sin and suffered and bled and died and raised again from the dead on the third day, victorious over sin and death. So repentance begins with a knowledge of sin. Secondly, repentance produces a sorrow for sin. When we see that we have truly offended a holy God, that we have dishonored his name, that we have sinned against ourselves and our family uh, with our sin, and whoever, whoever was the object of our sin, that we have not only wronged ourselves and wronged God, but we have wronged them as well, that produces within us a sorrow for sin, a godly sorrow. The Bible says that godly sorrow worketh repentance. Thirdly, we see that uh, repentance not only produces a sorrow for sin and begins with a knowledge of sin, but it also produces confession of sin. Uh, the one who is truly repentant, uh, J.C. Ryle says, his lips are loosed. He, he runs to the Lord and cries out to God, confessing his sin before him and recognizing his wickedness. Fourthly, uh, repentance also produces a breaking off from sin. Whereas once in our flesh, when we were walking according to the course of this world and according to the prince and power of the air, we sought after sin, a heart that is truly repentant and as faith towards God does not follow after sin, but instead our desires are renewed. Instead of wanting to follow after sin, we desire to follow after good and we break off from sin and make a habit of not committing uh, sin. And lastly, repentance produces a deep hatred of sin within the life of the believer. Building up a, a habit of holiness and a habit of uh, mortifying our sin produces a hate for that same sin in our own hearts and lives. You say, well, how can I work this, this work of repentance in my own heart? The fact is, none of us can. As we saw last week in, in Sunday school, both repentance and faith are a work of the Holy Spirit of God within our hearts. J.C. Ryle, in summarizing his five, uh, five marks of true repentance, he says this, and this kind of goes along with, uh, with which, which precedes the other. Does faith precede repentance or does repentance precede faith? He says this, true repentance is never alone in the heart of any person. It always has a companion, a blessed companion. It is always accompanied by a lively faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Where faith is, there is repentance. Wherever repentance is, there is always faith. I do not decide which comes first, whether repentance comes before faith or faith before repentance, but I am bold to say that the two graces are never found separate one from the other. Just as you cannot have the sun without light, or ice without cold, or fire without heat, or water without moisture, you will never find true faith without true repentance. And you will never find true repentance without lively faith. The two things will always go side by side. As believers, our desire and our, our seeking repentance does not come out of the same um, desire that the unbeliever sees. Jesus Christ told the, the Pharisees, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Here we see that Jesus' call to repent was also 
joined with the surety and the certainty of judgment that would come upon sinners if they do not repent. But as believers, we do not seek to have a repentant heart before God because we might come under the judgment of God. We seek to repent before our God the Father because we have been blessed, we have been saved, we have been cleansed of our sin. We have the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. And he has taken upon himself our sin and atoned for them perfectly. So we desire to repent and we should seek to have a heart of repentance before God, not in order to have a right standing before God, but because we have a right standing before God, we should seek to mortify the sins of our flesh. Notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He assures them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Uh, Many people have debated whether uh, Jesus was referring to, prophetically, referring to the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, AD 70, and uh, certainly we could see probably some parallels. A good case could be made that Jesus was speaking prophetically about the physical death of uh, these people who were under the hearing of his voice. Um, But to a greater extent, if, if we look at the context of Luke chapter 13 and look back to Luke chapter 12... Jesus did did not simply warn his hearers about a physical death. In fact, the contrary is true. Luke chapter 12, verse 4 and 5, Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, they have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The crowd had heard these words of Jesus. They were aware of not only a coming physical death, but they were being made aware by Jesus of an eternal death and damnation that comes upon all who are unrepentant. Certainly, we could draw parallels to the destruction of Jerusalem, and, and even in, in reading some commentators, they would, they would say this, that even some of the people who heard the words of Jesus Christ that day to the crowd having not repented, many of them were probably destroyed in the destruction of Jerusalem. It's been said of the destruction of Jerusalem that the bloodshed was so great that that blood was used to put out fires. That's how massive the bloodshed was when Jerusalem was destroyed. Here, I don't think that Jesus is simply warning them of a physical death. He wasn't simply warning them that if you don't repent, that you will come under a physical death. But instead, I think he is emphasizing the eternal punishment and suffering and damnation in hell if they did not repent. Instead of contemplating their own sin, however, and repenting, their hearts were even more consumed with self-righteousness, consuming themselves with comparing themselves to others, condemning others and consoling themselves with how righteous they seem to be before God. Notice here in in, uh, verse number 6, we'll look at verse 6 through 9. Here, Jesus Christ ends his teaching and his call to repentance to them uh, with both a a promise, a, a hope, but also with a stern warning. Here we find the parable of the barren fig tree. 
Verse number six through nine, let us read. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig round it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Many people look at this uh, parable, and I think a lot of times we look at parables, and, and in a sense, we, we tend to over-spiritualize them. Uh, we tend to draw a, a one-to-one parallel uh, with each and every aspect of the parable that's given. Some people look at this uh, parable, and they say, well, obviously, that the landowner is God the Father, uh, the vine dresser is Jesus, the fig tree is Israel, and the three years that we see that this fig tree was expected to have borne fruit, that three years has to be the, the three years that Jesus Christ was ministering on the earth. They draw a one-to-one parallel between every single aspect, and I, I think we do the text a disservice when we do that. Uh, certainly, there, there are parallels to be drawn, and we can look at the Old Testament uh, books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, also Hosea, and see that that Israel was often likened to a fig tree or to a vineyard. So we can see that there are parallels to be drawn, but I think the point of the, the parallel, uh, the point of the, the parable, pardon me, that, that Jesus Christ is trying to emphasize here is that uh, there is a time of patience and long-suffering that God and his mercy shows to sinners. Notice the, the man uh, the landowner comes, and he comes to see this fig tree planted in his vineyard. This is the third year that he has come to seek fruit from this fig tree. If we look in the Old Testament, um, whenever a, a vineyard was planted, uh, it, it, they, the, the fruit was not to be eaten the first three years. Um, instead, it was allowed to mature and to become a, a vibrant, healthy uh, tree or vine uh, so here, when we see this three-year period, this three-year period should have been a period where the, the landowner had come and looked at this fig tree and seen at least some type of fruit. Maybe not a fully developed fruit, but even small fruit from this tree. That's not what we see. Here, the, this landowner comes, and instead of examining this fig tree and finding any fruit, even the smallest fruit, he says, there is no fruit on it. This is the third year that I have come and still there is no fruit. Cut it down. And notice, notice what he says after that. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Why should it sap the nutrients uh, that all of these other vines and trees could use to be sustained and to grow and to bear fruit? Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And notice the, the uh, vine dresser says to the landowner, He says, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig round it and put on manure. Digging round it would kind of loosen that soil to allow those nutrients uh, to even more effectively penetrate the roots of that tree and cause it to grow and bear fruit. Also manure, we know the the fertilizing uh, benefit of having that manure to, to richen the soil and to provide nutrients to that tree. But he says, I'm gonna dig around it, I'm gonna put on manure, Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. 
As I said before, I, I would be cautious in, in drawing a direct parallel between every single aspect of this parable uh, and even the, the life of, uh, of Christ and his ministry or God's relation with Israel. One thing we do know, the fig tree surely does represent Israel. Um, and after an adequate amount of time, Israel was still barren. They had not borne any fruit. I think the point of this is that God would be totally just in destroying the fig tree without giving it any more time. But here in his mercy and in his long-suffering, what Jesus is emphasizing here is that there is still time to repent. There's still time to repent. If you're here today and have never trusted Christ as your Savior, you've never repented of your sins, you've never come to Christ in faith, casting yourself at his mercy and claiming hold of the promises that he gives us in his, in his word. Today you have time. But don't delay. Do not delay. Because the, the long-suffering and patience of Christ will one day come to an end. There will be a day when there is no more time for repentance. I think that's the point of what Jesus is trying to tell the Pharisees. Not only is there a hope in that while you are here under the sound of my voice, as Jesus spoke to those religious people, there is still time to repent. But also in this hope, there is also the certainty of coming judgment. Notice what the vine dresser says. He says, if it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. There is a day in which the long-suffering and patience of God uh, comes to an end, where there is no more time to repent. There is no more time to do what God has called us to do as believers, to follow after the Lord and to, to live in accordance with his word. Sometimes we say, well, you know, that's just for hyper-spiritual people. I'll do that next year. I'll do that next month. And we put off what we know God is calling us to do today, to follow after him, to sacrifice our own fleshly desires to mortify those desires and to seek after him and to follow him and to do what he has commanded us to do. Let's not be so lethargic in our Christian walk with God that we put off to do tomorrow what we know God has commanded us to do today. Notice uh, 2 Peter 3.9, we see the long-sufferingness of God um, here in this verse. Uh, scripture says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I think just like the Pharisees, a lot of times we tend to look at the Pharisees and we say, those, those rotten hypocrites. But I think what we should gather from this this uh, sermon that Jesus Christ gave, from this call to repent that Jesus Christ gave the religious people is not an attitude of self-righteousness, for then we would be no better than they. We should not look back at the Pharisees and say, oh, look at how wicked and evil they were. I'm so glad I am not like that. Instead, as Jesus called the Pharisees not to examine the lives of those who'd been taken for some possible sin, so we should not look at the Pharisees and simply condemn them. 
But today I ask you, how is your heart? It's easy to examine the faults of others. Isn't that what Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount? We're constantly trying to get that splinter out of our brother's eye, but we can't seem quite to grasp hold of it because there's a big log in our way. We're so quick to pick at the the wrongdoing and the sin of others, but yet seem to overlook our sin so easily. Firstly, today, if, if you're here today and not a believer, I would urge you, Today, God has given you an opportunity to hear his word so that you might come in faith to his son, Jesus Christ, that you may forsake your wrong thinking of him, forsake the gods that you have set up in your mind that are not gods at all, and turn to him in faith and repentance. We have the promise in Scripture, John chapter 6 and verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I can assure you today, if you are not a believer, that if you flee to Christ, that if you have faith in him, that if you repent of your sins, you will not find a closed door. You will not find a Savior who is, who is unwilling to listen to you or unwilling to pardon you. All who come to him, he will freely receive and will welcome them in. But secondly, if you're here today and you're a believer and you have repented of your sins, Don't delay to make a quick work of repentance in your own heart when you see your sin. As the psalmist David uh, prayed, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wickedness, any wicked way in me. That should be our attitude toward our sin. Lord, reveal to me the area of sin that I have. Maybe that I don't even realize that I'm harboring in my own life. Sometimes we have areas of sin that we know about. Certainly there are sins that that if we were to go around the room and and discuss everyone's personal sin, something immediately would come to mind and say, you know, I, I struggle with this sin. But ask the Lord to reveal the sins in your own heart, and then knowing the sin that we have in our heart, let us make quick work to repent of them to realize it is a sin against God, that as, as people who are justified by faith and in a right standing with God who have laid hold on the promises of Scripture, that those promises hold true for us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, We have received forgiveness of sins. So let us seek to seek forgiveness. Let us make quick work of repentance in our own hearts and lives. In reading um, this past past week, I I can't remember. I was trying to find the quote because there's a really good quote. Uh, I'm not sure if it was J.C. Ryle or somebody else, but um, he had mentioned something to this effect. As long as we were in this body... There will be evils to confess, there will be sins to deplore, and there will be wickedness within our own hearts uh, to dispense from our lives. And certainly that is the truth. But let's, we, we have the promises of God that if, if we confess, he will forgive us. So let's continue to lay hold on those promises, not just repenting once in our lives and then 
uh, we are good for the rest of our lives. Uh, we, we need to examine our own hearts and come before the Lord and seek forgiveness and find mercy and forgiveness at his throne. Let's pray. Our dear Father, Lord, I pray that we would indeed learn a lesson. Lord, from the, the call to repentance that, that Jesus gave the religious crowd. And, and Father, may we not be uplifted in self-righteousness, but may we humbly come before you and thank you for the, the work of repentance and faith that you have wrought in our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would not become stagnant in our Christian walk, but Lord, that we would continue to come before you and continue to follow after you. And uh, when we find sin in our own hearts, Lord, may we repent of it and find mercy at your throne. In Jesus' name I pray.